Masters of Deceit is a Christian fiction novel written and created by Jeffrey W. Chapman. All copyrights for artwork, electronic book, paper book, and all other digital reproductions belong to Jeffrey W. Chapman. All rights reserved. No part of this book may be reproduced or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic or mechanical, including photocopying, recording, or by any information storage and retrieval system, without permission in writing from the copyright owner. This is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents either are the product of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously, and any resemblance to any actual persons, living or dead events or locales, is entirely coincidental. Okay. With all that legal mumbo-jumbo out of the way, sit back, relax, and enjoy the audiobook narration of Masters of Deceit. Prologue, 1908. Madagascar is a beautiful island mysteriously floating just outside the continent of Africa, a land full of opportunity and riches. The eastern region sports a variety of vegetation and diverse animal life, while the central mountainous plateau dominates the island. Dense population and rich soil for farming is found primarily around the coastline, while the rest of the island is believed to be rich in minerals such as chromite, graphite, mica, semi-precious stones, bauxite, and coal, just to name a few. But for a man like Pierre de Vesely, the diverse animal life piqued his interest. He enjoyed discovering rare exotic animals and mounting their heads in his trophy room. His team of ten hunters was currently tracking some rather strange footprints in the forests of Madagascar on a cool April morning. Pierre had heard of the rumors of a large, man-like creature that at times strolled on two feet, but usually walked on all fours. He wanted to be the first to kill the beast and bring its remains back to France as proof of the creature's existence. However, if it were just another animal, then its furs should bring some money. Pierre doubted it was a dumb animal. In three days of tracking, the beast had avoided each trap, always staying one step ahead of them. He doubted that any beast could be that lucky. It was evidence of intelligence and a challenge to Pierre's cunning tracking ability. According to the scout's survey of the land, they were pushing the animal toward a cliff area barren of forestation. Very soon the beast would double back, and then they'd have it. Hours passed as each hunter kept his senses heightened in expectation of the beast's arrival. However, they only heard the soft crunch of the earth under their feet and felt the strong wind on their faces. They should have seen or heard something by now. As they advanced, the forest cleared up ahead. Pierre held up his hand, calling the group to a halt. This didn't seem right, he thought. We should have seen the animal charging back by now. This was no ordinary beast, it's a thinking animal. Pierre motioned for his trusted friend Jean-Claude Bonnet to come over. Jean-Claude was a large muscular man with the agility and speed of a mountain lion. Pierre always took his friend with him on hunts because of Jean-Claude's natural hunter's ability. Nothing evaded Jean-Claude. His massive frame dwarfed the rifle he carried as he approached Pierre. What do you think, Jean-Claude? whispered Pierre as his friend knelt down next to him. Jean-Claude shook his head. This is no ordinary beast, he said, pausing. It seems to be waiting for us somewhere in that clearing. There's nowhere else for it to go, unless there's a cave we can't see. It just can't be waiting out in the open to charge us. It would be exposed. We would have had an open shot to bring it down. There must be somewhere it can hide. 
Jean-Claude rubbed his massive chin before answering. I fear that it has something waiting for us. Fear, thought Pierre. Jean-Claude never used that word before. Pierre looked deep into his friend's eyes. What are you saying? Pierre. Jean-Claude hesitated in what he was going to say next. I believe the roles in this hunt has switched. What? I believe we're being hunted. Nodded. We'd better be very careful. This could be a trap for us, not this beast. Arrogance rose up in Pierre. This was more than he could stand. We have guns, we have the skill, and by God we have the superior intellect. Are you telling me this is nothing compared to this animal? I should hope not. I'm a man, and nothing on the face of this earth is greater. Pierre rose to his feet. Today, I shall prove it. Pierre motioned for his friend to go back to his position. When everyone was ready, the group slowly moved forward. After 50 yards, all of the hunters laid at the edge of the opening. There they stayed for several minutes, carefully scanning the land before them when out of nowhere, a blurred figure jumped up and dashed for a large rock formation on the edge of the cliff. Where did that come from? thought Pierre. I surveyed the land carefully and didn't see anything lying flat on it. It must have the ability to camouflage itself. And why didn't I see those rocks before? Pierre reasoned that he was so busy, looking at the ground, that he just overlooked the rocks. He shook his head, reasoning that he had to be careful. This creature was going to be the ultimate challenge. He made a motion for the men to move toward the rocks. Jean-Claude countered the move, the men held their position. Jean-Claude carefully moved to Pierre. It's so good, my friend, we had better retreat. Pierre couldn't believe what he was hearing. What? You said? Pierre, this is no typical beast. Its sudden movement, when we couldn't see it, tells me it wants to be seen. It wants us to follow it. It wants? Pierre shook his head and placed his hand on his friend's shoulder. Jean-Claude, it's just an animal looking to escape us, nothing else. It's reacting on instinct, not a preconceived plan to trap us. Now, let's go. Jean-Claude took Pierre's hand off his shoulder. No, my friend, you're wrong, and if you continue it may cost you your life. Pierre stared at his friend. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. Jean-Claude has always been there for him, backing him up during every adventure. He couldn't begin to count the times they've saved each other's hides. This was the first time, since Pierre had known him, that Jean-Claude backed off from a hunt. He may have changed a particular trap, but never retreated. Defiance rose up within Pierre. You're not coming with me. Jean-Claude shook his head. Okay, then you'll back me up. My friend, this is not good. We must go now while we have a chance. Jean, this isn't a war. This beast isn't a man. It's only one creature against 11 of us. Jean-Claude shook his head and backed away. I have always backed you up, my friend, but this smells of death. You have always trusted my instincts. Please, I beg you, listen to me now. Pierre looked past his friend and raised his hand to continue forward. There were mixed expressions throughout the group. Pierre was the leader of the group, but everyone knew Jean-Claude's instinct was equal to none. Jean-Claude stared at the determination on his friend's face and knew Pierre wouldn't be swayed. Jean-Claude also knew there was a pretty good chance that this would be the last time he'd ever see his friend again. He backed off carefully, slowly surveying the forest around him. As Jean-Claude backed into the forest, several of the hunters followed him. The remaining five waited and watched as Jean-Claude's group slowly disappeared. Fine, thought Pierre, the fame and glory will go to this group. 
The others will be known as cowards and never be trusted on a hunt again. Pierre's group slowly emerged from the forest into the open area before the cliff. Upon inspection of the ground, there was no place a creature of substantial size could hide unless it camouflaged itself. And there weren't even tracks or disturbed rocks on the ground, indicating that it was ever here. Pierre shook his head. He didn't want to get paranoid like Jean-Claude. Pierre looked at the rock formation. The longer he looked at it, the more it looked like some kind of eroded rock building. There was an opening that looked like a door. Pierre's group fanned out to encircle the structure. After confirming there was no back door and other exits, the men kneeled close to the door, awaiting Pierre's instructions. There was no light in the cave. The creature definitely had the advantage if they entered. They had to somehow get the creature to leave. Pierre felt a tap on his shoulder. Something on the wall, whispered one of the hunters. Pierre looked in the direction the hunter was pointing. It was a carving of someone pointing something toward the sun. The rest was eroded away. Pierre shrugged. Natives, so what? Let's concentrate on getting that animal out. An idea hit Pierre. The building looked sturdy enough to hold someone on the roof. It was approximately 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 15 feet high. If that person could make enough noise, it could possibly flush the animal out. It did seem spacious enough to cause echoes, and they could easily get someone up there. Pierre relayed his plan to the others, then chose Felipe to cause the disturbance. Once Felipe was on the roof, and the rest of the hunters poised and ready to take action on the fleeing animal, Pierre gave Felipe the go-ahead. Felipe looked down on the roof before he cocked his gun and saw a carving of a circle inside of an oval shape, looking like an eye. He shrugged. The natives must have had their reasons for making this stupid thing, he thought. Felipe then fired his rifle at the roof 20 feet away from him. Pierre heard the impact of the shot echo throughout the building and waited. Nothing. That should have definitely scared the animal out. Pierre waited a couple of minutes and then motioned for Felipe to fire at the roof again. Felipe cocked his weapon, aimed, and then inexplicably dropped it. The rifle went off when it hit the ground. However, the bullet never made contact with the roof. Felipe shook his hands, wondering what happened. One minute he was holding the gun, and the next it was on the floor. Pierre and the rest of the hunters heard the shot but not much of an echo this time. Nevertheless, they waited for the animal. Again nothing. Pierre was about to motion for Felipe to come down when he heard a rustling within the building and the sound of a weird hum. The animal must be getting ready to come out, he thought. The hunters tensed in expectation. Felipe heard the screams from on top of the roof and glanced over the edge to see the feet of one of his comrades being dragged inside. There was no one else to be seen. They were gone. Pierre, Gaston, he screamed. Felipe rushed back to get his rifle and stopped dead in his tracks. It was gone. He scanned the entire roof, but the rifle was nowhere to be seen. A gust of wind blew against Felipe's back as a forceful blow made contact against the base of his skull. Nineteen hundred twenty-eight. It all began around Cambridge University, an institution that took pride in both its tenured professors and its goal to push the boundaries of excellence and novel thinking. Sir Geoffrey Fairchild rushed through the early May fog from his home to the bakery. 
He could already smell the evidence of the baker's early morning efforts in the cool air as he checked his watch. Being a few minutes early was always an accepted variant to this Monday routine, a routine that developed over the years more from habit than necessity. Every Monday, he would be first to get the baker's freshly baked muffins, first to enter his department at the university to plot his tasks for the day, and first to greet the librarian as the doors opened at 6.15. At 6.20, one of the librarians would enter his private room with his tea and morning paper. He would then give the librarian his book requests and wait patiently, eating his breakfast and reading the news. However, today his routine was shattered. While Sir Geoffrey was inside the bakery, an old beggar man walked uneasily down the street, coughing up thick yellow-green fluids that also dribbled down his chin. He was definitely out of sorts, this being the more upscale part of town. People desperately scattered as the man lumbered down the sidewalk, his eyes glazed over, and lips muttering French obscenities. In his condition, it was no wonder he didn't see the store door fly open, catching him hard on his temple. The man slumped to the floor unconscious with a horrible gash on his forehead. Sir Geoffrey Fairchild stared at the unfortunate recipient of his ill-timed exit. The man was a vagabond and smelled of the streets, however, Sir Geoffrey, being the gentleman that he was, knelt down beside the man. Oh, dear God, Sir Geoffrey mumbled as he inspected the man's wound. It was serious. Realizing that the only hospital was too far and wouldn't accept a vagabond in such a condition, he decided to take the man to his home. Since he felt responsible for the man's condition and lived only a few blocks away, and his personal physician even closer, it wasn't a hard decision to make. Sir Geoffrey rushed back into the store and got two young men to help him take the man to his home. The owner of the store would send word for his physician to meet them. When the vagabond's wound was tended to and his clothes removed, Sir Geoffrey's butler reluctantly sponged the man down. Once the man was clothed with fresh garments and lying comfortably in the guest room bed, Sir Geoffrey left the room to wait on the physician. The butler was left behind to keep an eye on the lout. A few minutes later, a woman peeked through the door. So, is it true? She whispered to the butler. Humph, he replied. The maid wrinkled her nose. The room smells of death. The man must be diseased. The butler looked at the maid. Elizabeth, he whispered, as soon as Dr. Gilder gets here and revives this creature, he'll soon be on his way. The master will no longer be bound by this misfortune. Well, until he does, you better make sure he doesn't run amok. One room to clean after him is enough. Humph. One hour later, Dr. Gilder entered the room and looked at the unconscious man in disgust. The doctor tried to hide his reaction since Sir Geoffrey was close behind. Is he all right, doctor? asked Sir Geoffrey. Dr. Gilder was hesitant in touching the man, so he inspected the wound on his head and nodded. The dressing is adequate, there's not much damage. Probably due to the man's thick skull, the doctor thought. However, he continued, the smell of his breath suggests he has a nasty upper respiratory infection. I have some penicillin that he can have. It's up to him to take it for several days, but looking at his condition, he's not used to taking care of himself. Fine, fine, but why is he still unconscious? The doctor looked at his friend and smiled. My dear Geoffrey, he's sleeping. Can't you tell? This is probably the most comfortable bed he's had in a long time. Sir Geoffrey Fairchild folded his arms around his chest. Humphrey, wait the man and see him on his way. He said, early the next morning, 
Sir Geoffrey rushed out of his home for the university. He couldn't get further than one block when he felt a heavy hand on his shoulder. He turned to see the hulking sunburned figure of yesterday's vagabond. Geoffrey didn't know how to respond and was beginning to think the worst when the vagabond spoke. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your kindness. Where others show disdain, you show mercy. The vagabond turned and began to walk away. Sir Fairchild was amazed at the words. The man sounded educated. What misfortune struck this individual? Bringing him to such a lowly state, he thought while looking at his pocket watch. He didn't have a class to teach today, and if he were late in showing up at his office, that was his business. Wait, up, uh, wait a minute, shouted Sir Fairchild after the vagabond. The man stopped and looked curiously at the middle-aged Englishman. I must speak with you. The vagabond looked from side to side. Life on the streets taught him to always be on the guard. The approach by the Englishman was out of the ordinary. As Sir Geoffrey drew closer, he again began to smell the stench of the street on the man, but not as strongly as before. Do you, uh, have a place to stay? He asked. The vagabond tilted his head. Yes, I do. I carry my home with me wherever I go, and where I stop is where I stay. An intelligent and witty answer, thought Sir Fairchild. I must find out what happened to this man. Maybe all he needs is for someone to help him back on his feet. Do you have anything you eat today? Are you hungry? Can I buy you something to eat? The vagabond smiled. Sir, if I had money, I would still be rejected from any store due to my attire. Then I shall surely give you something to eat, if you don't mind, of course. We can eat in the park, if you wish. The vagabond accepted. After the vagabond had consumed five large muffins and two large glasses of milk, Sir Geoffrey finally built up the nerve to ask several questions nagging him. He quickly looked around. There wasn't anyone close to their park bench or the small lush green field nearby to hear their conversation. Up, uh, I didn't get your name. The vagabond smiled. That is because you never bothered to ask. That is true. You know my name, Sir Geoffrey Fairchild. What's yours? Jean-Claude Bonnet. You're French. But you speak English perfectly. I would have never guessed, he said, even more intrigued by the man. Yes, I'm fluent in three languages. French and English, as you know, and Spanish. The three most powerful languages in the world. My dear man, whatever happened to you? Asked Sir Geoffrey. My dear sir, it... Jean-Claude began to cough uncontrollably. After a while, he coughed up volumes of green sticky fluid onto the grass. I'm so sorry. As you can see, I'm not well. He cleared his throat. As I was saying, it would take much too long to explain. Nonsense, said Sir Geoffrey. Surely you must be getting to work by now, asked Jean-Claude. The man was avoiding answering the question. Maybe it's still too painful for him, Sir Geoffrey thought. Mr. Bonnet, Call me Jean-Claude, he interrupted. Jean-Claude, forgive me for intruding upon your memories. I shall not do so again. But you are in dire need of medical attention. I would not be much of a good Samaritan if I allowed you to remain as so. I shall take you to the hospital where you will be well attended to. Jean-Claude gave a raspy laugh. Our kind are not welcomed much of anywhere. Then I will personally see that they do, said Sir Geoffrey. Moments later, Sir Geoffrey Fairchild stood over a hospitalized Jean-Claude. Without much of a fight, Sir Geoffrey had been able to get the vagabond into the hospital with a private room. Once he started to throw his name around, the attendants quickly responded to his demands. 
The nurses gave Jean Claude a sedative to relax him as they took care of his personal needs. It wasn't long afterwards that the man fell into a deep sleep. For the first time, Sir Geoffrey examined the man carefully. He had a slight hunch in his back, indicating he was much taller in his earlier years. He had quite a large frame, suggesting he used to be quite muscular and a rather strong chin. Fairchild shook his head. He knew that a strong chin wasn't supposed to indicate character, but in this case, he had to make an exception. Looking at Jean Claude's hands, Sir Geoffrey gathered the man was also very active. They were rough and callous. Of course, that could have come from the time he spent on the streets, but Sir Geoffrey doubted it. You seem to be a jack of all trades, my dear fellow, Sir Geoffrey whispered. Jean Claude squinted. Close the door, sir, he whispered back. Caught off guard by Jean Claude's untimely response, Sir Geoffrey wondered how the man could be conscious. He was given a large amount of sedatives that would have tackled a large animal by now. Fairchild slowly walked to the door and closed it. Jean Claude held up an unsteady finger to stall the flood of questions, ready to head his way. If you've been through what I've been through, you'll learn quickly how to stay awake while sleeping. What? Jean Claude shook his head. It doesn't matter. First, I must ask you, what is your profession? I don't possibly see how. It's important to me, Jean Claude interrupted. Your hospitality and generosity goes beyond what I've seen from others in your present stature of life. I was just curious. Okay, said Sir Fairchild, relaxing. I'm a professor of archaeology and history at Cambridge. Jean Claude turned his head without saying a word. What? Are you displeased? Jean Claude took a deep breath, then looked at Sir Geoffrey. I'm sorry, sir, but I was caught quite off guard by your response. Please forgive me. Yes, yes, it's no problem. But why were you taken aback? Jean Claude looked at the professor for what seemed to be a long time. He sat up on the bed, maintaining eye contact and smiled. You have a good soul. Never let anything take that away from you. He held up his large palms toward Fairchild. These hands have been where some have gone and never returned. These hands have seen much and very little, and these hands don't have much longer to live. His hands dropped to his side. Sir Geoffrey blinked in confusion. Maybe the sedatives were affecting his mind after all, he thought. Jean Claude saw Sir Geoffrey's look and laughed. My dear sir, let me encourage you, I'm quite lucid. Again, a long pause. First of all, I want to thank you for making my last days as comfortable as possible. But the lifestyle I've led for the last several years has taken its toll. I feel as though my time on earth will soon be short. Why? Why, my dear man? What led you to the life of a street person? It was by choice. Silence. Shock. Unbelief. Surely you, yes, by choice, he interrupted. And you are right to insinuate that I'm not a typical vagabond. Why? Whatever possessed you to Jean Claude held up his hand. Please let me finish. I mean no disrespect. He took a deep breath, then continued. My father was one of the richest importer-exporters in Paris, France. He dealt with all types of items from ancient artifacts to stolen pieces of art. His influence was everywhere, including the local police. I was his only son out of four children. He had great expectations for me to continue his business, and of course I didn't let him down. I traveled from ancient Egypt to the outskirts of China, searching for exotic pieces of art and tapestry. I found much and stole more. 
In my spare time, I also hunted on remote sea furries and realized my natural hunter's ability. You see, I have a sense for the unseen and untouchable. The ability to see my prey's moves before it actually happens. A second sense. My father took advantage of my new interest by having me form seafaries for rare animal skins and ivory. For me, that wasn't a chore. It was a pleasure to challenge my abilities against various preys. My greatest challenge was, of course, hunting predators, mostly large cats. It was a pleasure to see that when compared to the predators of the world, I was the master. Sir Geoffrey saw the light of excitement shining in Jean-Claude's eyes when he talked about his hunting experiences and prowess. His muscles flexed as if he was actually reliving it. However, that light of excitement suddenly disappeared as Jean-Claude continued. Sir Geoffrey figured. Here was when the change in the man's life occurred. My last hunt took place. Jean-Claude shook his head. I forgot, it's been so long. Anyway, I was part of a hunt that would seek out and bring back an animal never seen before, a rare animal renowned for both its intelligence and strength. It took the expedition nearly two months to find the tracks of the beast. At first, we believed the beast was only a rumor, something made up. But when we found the first tracks, everyone's hopes were renewed. Well, except for mine. The tracks were too easily found for an animal that had evaded us for two months. It was as though it wanted us to track it. Never before had I found such an animal that gave me such a feeling. I kept my feelings to myself at first, for the tracks resembled that of a regular ape, and I didn't want to seem a fool to my peers without any solid proof. You see, I have tracked apes before, and never did they exhibit such craftiness. Despite my inner warnings, I continued forward, determined to find out what matter of beast it was. Yes, I was arrogant to believe I was the supreme predator, but never did I believe there could be an animal on this planet that could match or surpass my own skills. I had to at least see this creature, I had to know. The hunting party continued on. Never did we see the beast, only what tracks or evidence of its path it left behind. The beast always stayed a step ahead of us, a noted sign of intelligence. This fueled the party with the passion to continue on. After several days, one of our scouts reported that our pursuit of the beast was leading it toward a cliff area. Soon we would have it trapped. I spoke to the leader of the hunt party and told him this uncanny beast wouldn't allow itself to be trapped so easily. It would probably head back and break through our lines or attack. As the hunting party approached, we slowed down to investigate, but there was no sign of the creature. Did it double back? avoiding us. No, I didn't think so. It was still ahead of us, but we couldn't see it or notice any tracks leading to its location. This was when I noticed that we weren't leading the animal, it was leading us. I expressed my concerns but was immediately dismissed. So instead of proceeding, several others and I retreated. The other half of the hunting party continued forward. Several minutes passed before I realized what I was doing. I was running away from the predator, and usually when a predator scares the prey, the predator leads the prey toward an ambush. We stopped, and I decided to get a better view of our situation. As I left my group, my instinct told me to cover my tracks. I soon found a tall tree to climb. As I climbed to the top, I heard several shots from the other group's direction. When I reached the top, I looked in that direction to see. I, Jean-Claude shook his head and looked at the floor. The other group was dead. After a long pause, he continued. I then heard shouts and the sound of a scuffle below me. My group was being attacked. 
I wanted to go down and help, but my instincts told me they were already dead. If I had descended, I would have joined their fate. Then, like any prey that had found a good place to hide, I remained motionless for a long time. It took great mental and physical discipline to remain still for a day and a half, but the fear of death was a great motivator. When I felt safe, I surveyed the area from the tree, plotted my course of retreat, and descended. When I reached the ground, I saw no evidence of a scuffle. It was as though it never happened. I knew I was being hunted, and for the time being they didn't know where I was. Unfortunately, they didn't leave any tracks so I didn't know where they were. Jean-Claude looked up at Sir Geoffrey with watery eyes. I escaped, made it back to Paris, and have been on the run since then. On the run, since the hunt? Asked Sir Geoffrey, shocked. Surely, my dear man, those animals didn't follow you back. No, he said, shaking his head, not animals. There's only one animal on this planet, that's the dominant predator. Once I saw this, my arrogance was immediately dashed. You mean, said Sir Geoffrey, astonished and unable to complete his thought. Yes, Jean-Claude said, falling silent. No words or glances were exchanged until Jean-Claude continued. They were men with far greater skill and abilities than I've ever seen. They knew my hunting party was coming. They knew each one of us by name and face, and they even knew our entire individual histories. I came home thinking myself safe only to bring the hunt back with me. They killed my family, destroyed my father's business, and ruined my family name, all to get to me. I guess I frustrated them with my ability to disappear, but never once did I realize their ruthless nature to take the fight to innocent individuals. It was then I realized that to protect myself and others from their attacks I had to disappear completely, become a derelict, a vagabond. Jean-Claude stared deeply into Sir Geoffrey's eyes. And so I tell you only part of what I know. Because of your kindness, I answered your questions of why. But now you have a choice, my dear sir. To either dispel this tale as an old man's bout with insanity or to accept it as truth. The choice is yours. Jean-Claude took a deep breath and slumped back on the bed. I'm tired of running. I've been running too long. The predator will soon have his prey. He then laughed out loud. They've never met prey like me before, he said. Sir Geoffrey stood there, speechless. The utterly ridiculous story he just heard was that of a heavily sedated man obviously losing his mind. Before Fairchild had entered the room, the doctors had said Jean-Claude didn't have long to live since the disease infecting his body would soon overtake him. Well, he thought, at least I could make his life comfortable until the end. It was the best I could do. Jean-Claude looked at Fairchild again. If you believe me, keep your thoughts to yourself. Never let anyone know, or it will cost you your life. They have eyes and ears everywhere. And if you don't believe my story then, well, it doesn't matter, does it? Sir Geoffrey paused before answering. Rest, Jean-Claude, rest. You need to gather your strength. Jean-Claude nodded slowly. The decision is yours but I carefully placed my journal inside the bed where you first laid me in your home. There you'll find everything I know. You can either read it or throw it away. Throw it away if you find me a raving old fool. Read it if you want to know the truth. But if you read it, keep its knowledge to yourself if you value the lives of all those close to you. You must not tell your wife or children or they too will face the same fate as my family. Now hold on, said Sir Geoffrey. 
You go too far to forgive me. Please forgive me, Jean-Claude interrupted. Forgive the wandering mind of an old fool. You are much too kind to show mercy on an unfortunate soul as myself, he said, much too loudly. Before Sir Geoffrey could respond, a new doctor entered the room and glanced at the two for a long, awkward moment. Turning to Sir Geoffrey, the doctor said, Sir, this, um, patient needs his rest. If you wish to visit him again, please come back tomorrow morning. Yes. Fine, but please inform me immediately if Jean-Claude has any needs. Yes, sir. Rest well, Jean-Claude, I will see you tomorrow. Jean-Claude nodded, not once taking his eyes off the doctor. When Sir Geoffrey left the room, he heard Jean-Claude mumbling. So now you have me. He shook his head as he walked away. Later that night, the very same doctor came to the Fairchild estate to inform Sir Geoffrey of Jean-Claude's death. The doctor also mentioned that the body was burned to prevent any spread of disease. Well, said Sir Geoffrey, at least his last hours were spent in comfort and not out on the streets. The doctor listened carefully to the words and remained silent for a long time as if contemplating something. After a few more words, the doctor left the Fairchild estate. And so Sir Geoffrey continued his life, forgetting the fanciful book in his bed until three months later. He was reading an article from the morning paper about some heartless lout, calling on Parliament to round up all vagabonds in England and send them to America so they could be the colonists' problem. The next sentence caught his attention. So we can close the book on this embarrassing lot of street scum. Close the book, he mumbled. Several minutes later, he stood in the bedroom with Jean Claude's journal in his hands. Should he burn it or read it? Sir Geoffrey found his hands flipping through the pages as he eagerly read. His mind raced at what Jean Claude described. One section particularly stood out. Going back through the forest would be a mistake. They would most definitely find me there. I had to take the most dangerous escape route and scale down the side of the cliff. After several minutes of making sure these mysterious men wouldn't appear out of thin air as before, I made my descent. I told my mind not to dwell on the past events and what I just saw, I had to move on. The image of Felipe being attacked from behind by a man appearing out of nowhere and floating to his position was something no one could easily clear from his mind. At first I thought it was a ghost, but my intuition suggested otherwise. I must focus. If I continue to think about this, I will freeze in my judgments and make a mistake that could cost me my life. Anyway, it took me several hours to safely make it down to the river below. Once there, I found several old logs and made a crude raft to ride the river to its end. The sun was much too hot, but with the abundance of fresh water around, this didn't create much of a problem. I just remembered when I was on top of the cliff, I happened to pass by the building in which my comrades were ambushed. I glanced at the building and saw several odd figures. One was that of a man with hands outstretched to the heavens. I didn't understand what it meant then, but I do now. Again, I digress. After a day and a half on the river, I finally made it to several small villages. I waited until night to sneak into one of the villages and stole some clothes close to my size. The rest of my stuff I placed in was stolen fisherman's bag. While the natives still slept, I unhooked one of the boats and continued on down the river. All throughout these events, I felt as though the enemy was close but never close enough to determine where I was. A few more days brought me to the end of the river that led to an outlet to the ocean. 
I then guided the boat along the coast until I came across the western ports of Madagascar four days later. I then sank the boat, figured out which ship was heading to France, then became a stowaway. Sir Geoffrey stared at the journal. It was too remarkable to believe. Did he dare tell anyone? How did it all begin? Sir Geoffrey then decided to do what he did best, perform an exhaustive literary search. He just had to be careful not to make it obvious what he was looking for, fearing to resurrect any of Jean Claude's ghosts. Soon he found two journals with similarities to Jean Claude's. The first was written in 1887 by Professor Xavier Daniel and the second in 1903 by Dr. Rinaldo Vivante. The structures they discovered were too similar in detail to dispel, and each one of these journals had a resulting catastrophe associated with them. He began to wonder whether an expedition of his own would conclude in such a way. But from the drawings and inscriptions he'd seen, his mind was now saturated with unanswerable questions that needed resolution. Questions that could only be answered by doing one thing. He knew it could be dangerous and might bring the attention of the people who had hounded Jean Claude. Sir Geoffrey wasn't a warrior like Jean Claude, but rather an educated philosopher who wouldn't put himself in physical danger to find out the truth. Or would he? Would he dare go? Sir Geoffrey Fairchild, professor of archaeology and history at Cambridge University, is survived by his wife and five children. His unfortunate and unexpected death leaves us all mourning a great man, husband, and father. Sir Geoffrey Fairchild never hesitated to help those in need and was of distinct character, never once letting his stature in life taint his heart. He was a sensitive man who saw his purpose in life to challenge and strengthen his students, to touch those in need, and to push back the traditional approaches to learning and understanding the world around us. He was a man who can never be replaced. Even at the age of 52, he made a substantial difference in my life, and I'm pretty sure in the lives of many more. I just pray that his spirit will continue to live within his wife and children. Thank you. The priest then continued to use empty words to console the Fairchild family before continuing with the burial service. Hours later, after the body was buried, the grieving parties gone, and the tombstone in place, two men stood close enough to read the epitaph. Sir Geoffrey Fairchild, 1876 to 1931, a man of excellent character and spirit, a loving husband and father, said one man as he looked at the other. All secrets died with this one. The cold winter wind whipped the long black trench coats around their legs as the sun began to retire for the day. The two stood there in silence for a couple of minutes. The same man continued. It's not necessary to speak of our failure in interrogating Fairchild for the location of his journals. We will soon find the fool's journals even if it takes a long time. We were patient in finding Jean Claude after many years and will be ever vigilant to ensure that Fairchild's journals becomes ours if it's not already destroyed. Time is nothing to us. We always remain the same despite the passing of both years and decades. And we will never allow those books to be read.